0: Father, Lord, we thank you that we can gather together tonight and learn more about your word. Lord, we ask that you would open it up to us and that you would show your glory and your majesty and your plan of salvation and even of the end times to us, that we may trust you more, that we may glorify your name, and that we may be consumed about spreading your gospel to those who are perishing. And so, Lord, we ask for unity among the brothers and sisters who call on your name but we also ask, Lord, that you would help us understand the truths from these words that you have for us in the Scriptures. And we ask that you would do this in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Before I get started, I talked to. I want to make a couple of announcements. First of all, I talked to Alan Kirshner. As you know, I had mentioned some of the things that he had on his Internet site. I got to spend an hour conversation with him, and it was a great conversation. And I told him I would tell you that he does affirm the means of grace and the perseverance of the saints and the fact that not even a person who believes in the pre-trib position can lose their salvation. And so I rejoice in that. He is a brother in Christ. And the reason why I think this is so important is because that enables you and I to take the salvation issue off of the table. And whether you're pre-wrath, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, whatever position you have on the rapture, that will not affect your salvation. And so he would affirm that, and I rejoice in that. And so, praise God. The other thing I wanted to mention is, Mike had asked me a question, and I went home and I checked my notes, and it's based out of 2 Thessalonians 2. What comes first, the rapture or the apostasy and the man of lawlessness? I looked through my notes, and I misspoke. It's the rapture first. That's the next thing. And then it would be the apostasy and man of lawlessness, and it could be in succession very quickly. And we're actually going to be talking about 2 Thessalonians 2 next week. Now, that actually brings me to the other topic. I want to talk about how I'm trying to help you kind of understand eschatology. And I'm, I, the title of this slide here is filling in our charts. Here's what I mean. I want to help you organize your thoughts. So this is how I kind of organize my thoughts. I put everything in a timeline, Old Testament, New Testament, Daniel's 70th week, Christ's kingdom, that is the millennial kingdom, Christ's kingdom, the eternal state. So it would look something like this. And if you can, for instance, let's say you're confused at what passages point to what period of time. If you had a notebook or something where you could lay this out and say, well, this passage is related to this, that may help you. Now realize I'm not trying to make a theological statement here. I know some people believe the time of the Gentiles started in 605 B.C. and that the church technically didn't start to hear and the New Testament really wasn't here. I don't care about that. I'm just trying to help you put a timeline together. Are are you with me? So this may help you understand kind of how... Now here, notice where I have highlighted in red. I'm going to be teaching tonight out of the Old Testament, but it's going to be related to the Millennial Kingdom. So the next two nights, we're going to be talking about the Old Testament as it relates to the Millennial Kingdom, but then we're also going to be talking about the 70th week. So what I plan on doing is every week we'll have some passage that we'll focus in on that has to do with the 70th week. Does that make sense? So we're kind of bracketing the issue, and then we come at it, okay? So tonight, think of tonight as the first night that we're talking about the Millennial Kingdom. I will use the Millennial Kingdom, Christ's Kingdom, Messianic Kingdom, the Davidic Kingdom, God's Kingdom, the Kingdom of Heaven, the Kingdom of God, all interchangeably. So don't think I'm trying to make you know, something out of a, a different term. I'm not. They're all interchangeable as far as I'm concerned. It'll be referring to the Millennial Kingdom, What I want to do is start off talking about the book of Revelation, and I'm going to be talking about how the Old Testament informs both our understanding of Revelation and Matthew. And in the book of Revelation, what you're going to see is it's really all about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God coming, and in fact, Christ reigning. And it focuses on five elements of this kingdom. It focuses on the timing. And notice I didn't say the time, and I'm not trying to be funny about this, but realize what I mean by timing is where do these events occur in salvific history in the flow of things, but I'm not trying to claim that we know the date. In other words, I can't say it's 2042 on such and such a Wednesday. I'm not claiming that. I'm just saying the millennial kingdom comes after the 70th week. Are you, you see what I'm saying? It's the order. Okay, so the book of Revelation helps us understand the timing of the kingdom, the location of the kingdom. That's something we'll be looking at tonight. The nature of the kingdom the duration of the kingdom, and the participants. So we're going to be focusing then on the location of this kingdom and the participants tonight. And what I want to show you is one of the programmatic verses of the book of Revelation. This is actually what's called a proleptic statement. A proleptic statement is one in which it is so certain it's talked about in the present tense, even though it is still yet future. And it comes from Revelation 1115 b where it says that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And again, that is what the book of Revelation is all about. It is all about the Davidic kingdom coming into existence and Christ reigning and him fulfilling all of the promises that he has ever made in the Old Testament. And just to show you how important the understanding of the Davidic kingdom is, let me just show you a few passages. Here in Revelation 3.7, Jesus is talking to the church at Philadelphia. The synagogue of Satan, as he calls them, are trying to exclude the Christians at Philadelphia from fellowship. Jesus is doing a reversal. He says, I'm the one who actually has the key of David, and therefore he is the one who opens and shuts. He says, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut... Jesus is the one who has the key of David and therefore is the one who controls who enters and who does not enter the kingdom. This comes from, I believe, Isaiah 22:22, 22, 22, if my memory serves me correct. And so again, this passage is rooted in the Old Testament. Revelation 5, 5, people are weeping because no one is found worthy to open the seals to the scroll. And listen to what is said, Revelation 5, 5, and one of the elders said to me that as John stopped weeping, behold, the line that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Again, root of David coming from Isaiah 11.1. 1. David and his lineage is key to the kingdom. and In fact, Christ is the descendant of David and therefore is the one who is qualified to be the Messiah and the one who runs the kingdom. Revelation 22.16, Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things. I am the root and the descendant of David. So what you see friends here is that it is critical that Jesus he is not only the one who formed David, he was David's creator, but he also is his descendant. And therefore he is in the lineage of the seed promise and it proves that all of his claims are true. So what I want to do is in order to understand the Davidic kingdom and how it came about, what I actually want to do for the sake that we're all on the same page, I want to start in the beginning. Winston Churchill, when he was asked where should we start, he always said it was best to start in the beginning. I think it was him that said that. And so that's, let's do that. Let's start in Genesis 3.15. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you the very first gospel. In fact, this is called the Proto-Uangelion, meaning the first Uangelion, the first gospel. And what we see here in Genesis 3.15 is that Adam and Eve had succumbed to the serpent's temptation. God is now placing a curse upon that serpent, And listen to what he says. He says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Notice right here that we have the term seed. That comes from a collective noun called zera. What in the world is a collective noun? Well, a collective noun is like the term deer. You and I can shoot ten deer or we can shoot one deer when we're deer hunting. But we still use the term deer. What's interesting about this noun in Hebrew is it's a collective noun in the sense that it has to do with corporate solidarity, the idea of the one and the many. Notice, very important here in this text, you see right after the seed, there's actually a third person masculine singular Hebrew pronoun, he. And this Hebrew pronoun demands grammatically that we see this seed as being singular, okay? It's not about the many, it's first and foremost about the one, That is the Messiah. But the Messiah is going to end up, we're going to see as the seed promise progresses throughout the Old Testament, we're going to see that the many, that is the Israelites, are going to give birth to the one. And so if the many are wiped out, the one will not come. But the one will bring salvation about for the many. Okay, And so you can't divorce them from one another. Okay, But realize the first instance of this is clearly talking about a man. And this man... Is the one who's going to crush Satan. Okay? And so, friends, in a sense, then, the rest of the Old Testament is an unveiling of who the seed would be, where he would come from, and what he would do. That's what the Old Testament is about. In fact, the Hebrew prophets were not just giving, friends, haphazard prophecies, but they were engaged in teaching messianic doctrine. Okay? That's why Peter can say in Acts chapter 2 that David looked ahead and spoke of the Christ. In other words, he wasn't speaking better than he knew. He knew, for instance, in Psalm 16:10 that he was in fact talking about the Messiah. Okay? Now, let's take the seed promise and we'll go ahead now to actually Genesis 9. I'm going to show you something very interesting. In Genesis 9 here, we have the post-flood context where Noah and his three sons are survivors, obviously. They come off the ark and it's Noah Shem Ham and it makes a point notice Ham here Ham it makes a point in the text to say that he is the father of Canaan in both Genesis 9:18 and 9:22 I'm going to explain why I believe that Moses is making a theological statement explaining why the land of Canaan is given to the Israelites and then the final one that's mentioned here is the son Japheth okay now remember what happens here in Genesis 9 is that Noah ends up being drunk, and he becomes naked. He ends up undressing, and his son Ham actually uncovers his nakedness, and there's a debate. Does he do something lewd with Noah? That's not explicitly stated, so we don't know, but at least he embarrassed Noah, and he acted in a lewd manner. Well, what I'm going to show you now is Noah's response, and what you're going to see is that Noah ends up blaming Canaan, who is the son of Ham. And the reason why isn't because Canaan was there, but rather because Canaan in the future is going to end up acting in the same lewd manner, in the same idolatrous manner that, in fact, Ham has engaged in. Are you with me? So listen to the cursing that Noah pronounces. It says, So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. I'm going to stop there. Notice something very important where this is uh, bolded black. Notice this is talking about one person. It's not talking about Shem. It's talking about Yahweh, the God of Shem. So this entire section that I have bolded is about one person or one being. That is God. So it's important because when you go forward, it says, and let Canaan be a servant to him. The him being referred to is not Shem, but Yahweh. So Canaan is going to be a servant to Yahweh, okay? And then it goes on. It says, May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. There is some debate. You see where I have it underlined, let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Well, the debate is, is the him referred to here, is that Japheth or is it back to God, okay? Now, Walter Kaiser Jr. in his book, the Messiah in the Old Testament gives five reasons why we should understand that it is in fact God that will be in the tents of Shem. I'm going to give you two of the most powerful, or actually maybe three. First, notice that in fact if Japheth is the one that is going to be in the tents of Shem, that would be a very bad thing in the ancient Near East. Why? Why? Because it would show that Shem is not being blessed. In fact, his, his descendants, his seed are dwindling and therefore uh, Japheth is actually more uh, powerful and more prosperous. So that would actually be a cursing upon Shem. And certainly God would not want to uh, have a curse upon Shem because the Messiah is going to come from Shem. Okay? So that doesn't make sense. The second thing is, is typically when you have a subject from the previous clause in Hebrew poetry... And here we have actually three what are called die stitches, and there's a common refrain, which is, let Canaan be his servant, and let Canaan be a servant to him. That's a common refrain. Well, the God here is the subject in this clause, and therefore it should follow that the him should be identical to the subject here. Are you with me? In Hebrew poetry. And so those are two very powerful arguments that would indicate that the him being referred to is not Japheth, but it is God. And so the promise there then is that God will dwell in the tents of Shem. And this becomes very important because notice what it says again. And let Canaan be his servant. And so what we see here is this promise that God will one day come from the tents of Shem and he will dwell with him. And this is where we get the Semites. If somebody says they're an anti-Semite, they're just leaving off the Shem. Okay, It would be a Shemite. These are where all the Israelites come from. A descendant from Shem would be um, Terah. Terah, of course, would be the father of Abram or Abraham. Okay? And so you can see what God is doing is in Genesis 9, he's showing why it is that the land of Canaan is given over to the Israelites. And there is a reason because they are going to engage in the same types of idolatries and sinfulness that, in fact, their father Ham did. So now, let me just I 'm going to bring you to Genesis twelve, but before I give you genesis twelve i 'm going to show you how the seed progresses, the seed promise, but let me remind you of something Paul says in galatians three sixteen Very important because here we actually have commentary on this seed doctrine galatians three sixteen Paul says, "Now the promises, and notice that it 's plural notice that it 's a plural so it 's not just talking about one promise. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, is referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, that is Christ. Okay. Now, it's very important because what Paul is doing is he's giving us an infallible interpretation saying that we must understand the seed promise is primarily or referring to one, that is Christ. Now, that becomes very important in this next section, Genesis 12. Genesis 12, 1 through 3 and 5b through 7. Here we have Abram, he is in the land... Of Ur, and remember, actually he comes down from Ur, and he's actually in Haran, and he leaves from Haran. He's now going to be called into the land of Canaan. Now we've already learned that Canaan is going to be given over to God, isn't it? Right in in Genesis nine. So that's where we pick it up here in the narrative. The Lord says, "Go forth." He's speaking to Abram. He says, "Go forth from your country and from your relatives to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make you make your name great." And so you shall be a blessing, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. Yahweh appeared to Abram and said to your seed, I will give this land. Several things I want you to notice. First of all, remember we're going to be focusing on the location of the kingdom and the people who are included that in that kingdom tonight. Notice the promise of land. He's going to give them a land, and in fact they will be a great nation. This idea of the great nation is important because it's not just the idea of having real estate, but it's the flag and the real estate. Are you with me? Okay. It's not that they're just going to have a place to live. It's going to be theirs. It's their country. So the kingdom is going to be coming to a nation. He's also going to make Abraham's name great. And one of the most important promises, as in, it says, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is the idea of messianic salvation that isn't just for the Jews, but it's the first inkling that it's also for the Gentiles as well. Okay, very important promise, right? So you and I, were already seeing that we're going to be part of this kingdom, and we'll see, of course, that's by faith in Christ, all right? Now, something else I want you to notice. Notice it says, to the land of Canaan. It mentions it several times. And, and it's unusual because it says, now the Canaanite was then in the land. What I think is going on there is that's bringing you back to Genesis 9. Why was the land given up? Well, God gave you the answer in Genesis 9 because these people are engaging in the same type of sinful behaviors that Ham did. They're just following suit. It's not that they're being judged for what Ham did. It's just that they're doing the same thing. Are are you with me? Like father, like descendants. That's the idea. Okay? And something else to note. Note here. I didn't circle it or anything, but note it says Yahweh appeared. This is the first time. This is a theophany. God is actually appearing to Abram. And so it's not just him merely speaking to him. He's actually appearing to him. And notice it says, to your seed. According to Galatians 3.16, Paul is saying that seed is Christ. That's who the promises are for. And so why is that important? Because if the land is molested or abused by people today, yesterday, tomorrow, tomorrow, Whenever it is, who are they actually messing with? It's not just the many, that is the Israelites, although that is certainly true, but it's first and foremost the one, the Christ. Why? Because it's his land. It's his kingdom. It's all about him. It's what it's all about. The promises are all made possible by the one, that is the Christ. Okay, It's his land, his kingdom, his people, his salvation. Now I'm going to skip way ahead to Second Samuel 7, But before I do that, remember, let me just help you trace out the seed promise. The seed, that is this uh, Zerah, the the descendants that are going to bring about the Messiah, it goes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. Jacob is renamed Israel. He has 12 sons. According to Genesis 49.10, we know that it is, in fact, from the tribe of Judah that the Messiah will come. Well, then, what's left hanging is, well, out of all of the families of the tribe of Judah... Which family will it come from? And that is finally answered here then in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where, remember, David wants to build a house for Yahweh. Yahweh switches it and he says, no, I'm going to build a house for you and your seed. Okay, and of course, that's because the Messiah will come from him. And actually, the Messiah will build a kingdom and a house for Yahweh and represent him. 2 Samuel 7, 9 through 13 and 16 The Lord says, I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies. Interestingly enough, where were those enemies? Yes, they were Philistines and there were all sorts of different uh, people that troubled David and the Israelites, but it was in the land of Canaan. So again, God is faithful. He's given the Canaanites over, in fact, to uh, David. And he says, he cut them off from before you. And he says, I will make you a great name. Well, that's the same promise he gave to Abraham. And he goes, I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Then it says, Yahweh also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. I will raise up a descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house. Notice it says, i get my pointer to work here. Notice it says, He shall build a house for my name. This one who will build the house is going to represent the name of God. And I think about the third commandment, do not bear the name of the Lord your God in vain. This one will bear the name of the Lord perfectly. He will represent him perfectly. And he says, And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So let me just point out some of the promises. Again, the enemies in the land of Canaan would be driven out. He's going to make David's name great, just like Abraham. Notice there's a place. There's a land for this kingdom. It's for the people of Israel. It's literal. There is going to be a kingdom. We see that language of house, kingdom, throne. But it's all predicated again on the work of there it is, the descendant. That term there would be Zerah in the Hebrew. That is seed. If I were to, if you if you're the writing kind, you know there's two types of people that have Bibles: the people that will write in them and not write in them. If you're the writing kind, write Zerah. That's what it is. It's it's seed. So it's all predicated, all these promises, on the work of the seed. Okay. Now what I'm going to do is take this promise and go forward to the Davidic throne after Jacob's distress. What is prophesied in the Old Testament in Jeremiah chapter 30? is this idea that in the end we're going to have a time of Jacob's distress during what we and I would call the tribulation period or Daniel's 70th week. And what I'm going to show you is how God has promised the Davidic throne would last even through that. Now remember, when we come to Jeremiah chapter 30, we're entering four chapters that have to do with what's called the book of consolation, chapters 30, 31, 32, and 33. Jeremiah had to give devastating indictments against Judah prior to that because they were engaged in idolatry against Yahweh. In fact, God promised that he was going to send the Babylonians down against them and spank them, if you will, for their idolatry. And so in chapter 30, we get the first hints, really, of the fact that God is going to be faithful and he's going to bring Israel through in the end days, and he will, in fact, establish this kingdom. And so this is the first chapter in the book of Consolation. Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 6 through 7 the Lord has this question. He says, Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? Interestingly enough, um, this same phrase, talking about a woman in childbirth, is alluded to in Jeremiah 50.37. And the reason why it's a phrase that people would have known at that time is because when you laid siege to a city, what you wanted to do is scare their soldiers into acting like women, okay? It would be like if we're on the football field and the guy has the broken finger and he's in the huddle and he's whining and you say, well, quit acting like a girl. Sorry, you girls, but that's what we say to each other, okay? You say, quit acting, that's the same thing. And so the idea there is that at this time, there's going to be such travail that these men are going to even act like women in childbirth. That's how painful of a travail it will be. And he continues, he says, and why have... All faces turn pale. Alas, for that That day is great. Now, this is a reference actually to the day of the Lord. There is none like it. And it is a time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. Okay, so here we have the promise that Israel will be saved from it. Now, what I want to do is I want to show you some connections between what's being referred to here in Jacob's distress, the idea of a woman being in childbirth. And by the way, the, ter- the term childbirth is actually used also in Jeremiah 6:24, in Jeremiah 6:24, there's a lot of other passages, but in that one, I know for sure that this term "odin" is used. This term "odin" has to do with the Greek term for uh, labor pains, and we see, in fact, Jesus borrow from that in Matthew 24:8, where he says, "But all these things are the beginning of birth pains." The reason why that's important is because every—well, I shouldn't say every scholar, but most scholars agree that this is the beginning of the tribulation period. Now, why is that important? Because it's saying that if this is the beginning of the birth pangs and it's in the first three and a half years and the birth pangs are being alluded to as the time of Jacob's distress and this is the day of the Lord, well, then, therefore, the day of the Lord and the time of Jacob's distress should be synonymous then with the first three and a half years. Okay? Does that make sense of the Daniel 70th week? All right? Now, we see the same idea then in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 through 3 where Paul writes, he says, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord, again, I think that's synonymous with that day is great, will come just like a thief in the night while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like what? Like Odin, birth pains upon a woman with child. It's the same thing that Jesus is alluding to here. And it's the same thing that's being alluded to here, and it's the same thing that's being talked about in Jeremiah 6.24. It's this time where even the men and the inhabitants of judah will experience these birth pains now realize the imagery don't mistake pregnancy with birth pains when the birth pains come that is the tribulation period that is daniel's 70th week okay and it doesn't matter when the. my wife just had a baby okay so i'm, I'm confident to tell you when the water breaks birth pains have begun and it started in, on her. I was running around like an idiot yelling, hot water, hot water, okay? <laughs> I thought I was, I, just because I was so shocked, you know? <laughs> so anyway, the point is, is don't confuse the idea of being pregnant. Because remember, all of these promises have been pregnant, but as soon as the tribulation period hits Daniel's 70th week, the labor pains begin, okay? And they're, they're small at first, but they get worse and worse and worse as the, the pains develop as the time period goes on. I think that's how the imagery is used. And so we see Jeremiah continue the thought then, or the Lord does in Jeremiah thirty eight through nine, where he says, It shall come about on that day. And again that day is often used for the day of the Lord. It says declare the Yahweh of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off their neck, and will tear off their bonds, and strangers will no longer make them their slaves, but they will they shall serve Yahweh their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Again, this David their king, remember this is post-exilic. And so this reference, of course, should strike a chord in every Jewish person because they would be thinking, well, David is dead. He's stinking it up in the tomb, as they say. And so who is he talking about? Well, of course, it's David's seed. And therefore, this is talking about the Messiah. And so God will be faithful to his promises even then. And we see the same thing in Ezekiel 37, 24 through 25. My servant David, and this is talking about the Messiah, will be king over them. They will all have one shepherd and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived. And they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. Again, notice the promises. There's going to be a promise given to David. It will be the Messiah. There is going to be a land that they will live in. Jacob will be secure, and they will dwell with them forever. Okay, and this is after, the again, the exile, right? So these are the promises that we see that there will, in fact, be a Davidic kingdom. Now, what's interesting is we also see In the Old Testament, that there's going to be a Gentile inclusion. Again, this isn't just for the Israelites. We already saw back in Genesis chapter 12 that in you, you will be a blessing to all the nations. That is, Messianic salvation will go to Jew and Gentile alike. Gentiles are going to be included as well. And we see instances like in Isaiah 14.1 where it says, when Yahweh will have compassion on Jacob and again choose Israel and settle them in their own land, then strangers will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. And notice when this happens, when the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and again settle Israel in their own land. That's when it will happen. So it's referring to the latter days. We also see in Isaiah fifty-six three. it says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people, the Lord will not separate a Gentile who comes to him on his terms, and of course, the terms have always been through faith, okay Abraham believed God, it was credited in his righteousness genesis fifteen six remember Jesus says in john eight fifty six Abraham rejoiced when he saw my day, he saw it and was glad hebrews eleven nineteen says Abraham even believed in the resurrection. Now you ask, how does he believe in the resurrection well. Uh, Genesis 22, 5. Remember, he's going to Mount Moriah, him and Isaac, to sacrifice him. And he tells his servants that are with him, you stay here, me and the latter are going up to sacrifice, but we, third person, masculine, plural pronoun in Hebrew, we will return. Well, who's we? Well, it's Isaac and him. That's the only two that were going. And so therefore, remember, he was commanded to kill Isaac. So therefore, what must he believe? The resurrection. So he has the same faith. So Abraham looks forward to the day of salvation. He looks forward to the day of the cross, the day of Messiah. You and I look back to the day of Messiah and the cross, but it's one cross, one Savior, one salvation. Okay. And so through faith in this Messiah, we can all take part. Now it's interesting. I actually wrote a paper in seminary on Isaiah 56, and right after this section, it talks about eunuchs. And remember, eunuchs are those who are um, castrated. They're castrated men. And they're considered considerably, particularly, I should say, cursed by Jewish people. Why? Because they can't have any descendants of their own. It's very important to Jewish men to have a lineage, to have seed, right? Well, the reason why they were eunuchs is because the king liked to have them amongst his harem because they posed no threat. They were not going to be a usurper and so forth. But they are always regarded as the most cursed of all people. And yet later on in this section, the Lord says, even the eunuchs will, can be considered blessed... If they are attached to my name. In other words, even the eunuchs will be a part of this salvation. Interestingly enough, in Acts chapter 8, verse 27, who is in fact saved but an Ethiopian eunuch? Okay? He takes part in this salvation that was alluded to in Isaiah 56. And how does he do it? By Philip teaching him the gospel through Isaiah 53. Isn't that beautiful? And so you see that God is so gracious to even us Gentiles, and we see it even in the Old Testament. Salvation always was going to incorporate the Gentiles. It wasn't an afterthought. Friends, God has not gone from plan A to plan B to plan C. He's always been on plan A. He is sovereign. The salvation in his gospel has not changed one iota. Now, the thing that I think we have to remember, though, is that we are grafted into Israel. It's not the other way around. Paul mentions this in Romans 11.18 where he is quenching, if you will, any arrogance that Gentiles may have. He says, Romans 11.18, do not be arrogant toward the branches, that is, of course, the Israelites, but if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Okay? So the idea then, friends, is it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile, but what matters is that you have faith in the Messiah. However... Us Gentiles have to remember that, yes, you and I are the called-out ones. You and I are, in fact, the church. But you and I are being grafted into the promises of Israel. Where is the kingdom going? It's not coming to Minnesota. It's not going to New York City, Paris, Moscow. It's going to Israel. It's going to Jerusalem. And you and I, by faith in this uh, same Jesus that Abraham believed in, um, Yahweh, we're going to have salvation as well, okay? we'll be part of this kingdom. So two things that we have to keep clarified, in my opinion, is these two things. Number one, who is qualified for Christ's kingdom? Well, Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus. Acts 4.12, there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. It has always been that way. Again, Abraham rejoiced when he saw my date, Jesus claimed. He saw it and was glad. John 8.56, okay? So if you're going to be part of the kingdom, you must believe in Jesus. But do not mistake the second fact that we must keep straight is where is the kingdom coming? It's coming to Israel. This is going to be essential for understanding eschatology, in my opinion. This is my idea of walking and chewing gum at the same time. If we screw one of these two things up, we will end up with error. Oftentimes you'll see, for instance, Reformed theologians, they're very good on having salvation, the same yesterday, today, and forever, but they'll say that Israel has been replaced by the church. Dispensationalists are often very good with saying, no, Israel and the church are going to... The, the church is going to be grafted into the promises of Israel, but don't say that Israel has been replaced by the church. They're very good on that. But sometimes extreme forms of dispensationalists will say, well, no, there's one plan of of, of salvation for the Jews and another one for the Gentiles. We must avoid those two errors, Okay. Does that make sense? So now, just to show you the importance of the fact that the kingdom is coming to Israel, remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, what is the question that is posed by the apostles who end up being the leaders of our church that we belong to? They ask this question. Remember, in the context, Jesus had just instructed them for 40 days about the kingdom of God, and the disciples asked him. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And notice Jesus doesn't say, well, where did you get that idea? Okay, he doesn't ask that. They knew that that's where the kingdom was going. And Jesus does not refute that, but he says, it is not for you to know the time and the epochs that are set in my Father's hand, but you, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will have power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. Okay, and in fact, that's exactly what they do. But friends, realize the apostles themselves are saying that the kingdom is coming to Israel. And therefore, you and I rejoice in that because as Gentile believers in Jesus, that's our kingdom too. Okay, That's our kingdom. Now, there's Matthew 24 implications, in my opinion. Again, Matthew 24, again, is about the fulfillment of this kingdom. It's about the fulfillment of Daniel's 70th week, the idea that the kingdom is coming to Israel. And Matthew 24, then, friends, applies to all believers, whether Jew or Gentile. Why? Because it's your kingdom. Okay, it's your kingdom too. Now, before I read Matthew or Daniel 924 here, let re, let me remind you of the prayer that Daniel utters in Daniel chapter 9. It's one of the most moving prayers to me in all the Bible. And in Daniel 919, I'm only going to give you one verse, but I want you to see what Daniel's petition was because his petition now is being answered in Daniel 924. In Daniel's petition, Daniel 9.19, he says, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action for your own sake. O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. At the end of the day, God's people and God's city represent Yahweh's name. And so what's at stake that we're going to see in Matthew 24 and what's being answered here in Daniel 9.24, what's at stake is nothing short of Yahweh's name. If the kingdom does not come to Israel and you and I don't have a part in it, God is a liar. Okay? And so here we have the answer from Gabriel to Daniel. He says 70 weeks. Now, remember the 70 weeks? That was alluded to in Jeremiah, I believe, twenty-five twelve. It's in Jeremiah 29 where Israel, that is Judah, would serve Babylon for 70 years. Now, Gabriel is playing off of that and he says it's going to be 70 times 7 until everything is fulfilled. Okay? And so he says 70 weeks, literally 70 heptaps, 77s have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. Notice first of all in this passage, whose people is it? Well, it's your people, Daniel. And so that would be Israel. It's also your holy city. That's Jerusalem. And what's to do? It's to finish the transgression. The word there for transgression is pasha. And pasha has to do not just with the idea of sinning against God's moral commandments, although that's implied, but it's broader than that. This has to do with the general rebellion of mankind against God and his rule. This is the idea that you would think about in Genesis 11, where men wanted to make a name for themselves, by building their own tower, it is the usurping of god 's authority. he is going to remedy that, and also notice it 's to make an end to make an end of sin. This is kata, and that term denotes sin that 's violating the commandments of God. Now all of these things point towards a time where we will have a society where there will be righteousness, okay because people are still sinning today, and people are still trying to usurp the authority of god however this next one was fulfilled by christ at his first advent it will be making atonement for iniquity but then he goes on again to bring in everlasting righteousness well we certainly don't have that today on earth do we okay to seal up vision and prophecy and again i think that points to the very end and then to anoint the most holy place now some scholars who want to try to claim that this anointing the most holy place refers to jesus it's a nice thought i mean we like to do you guys remember that joke where there's, I I don't know if I even remember how this goes, but there was some school kid and he wanted to sound very pious in Sunday school and this teacher drew a picture and it looked like a squirrel and she says, well, what's this class? And the kid, he wanted to sound religious and kind of pious and he says, well, I don't know, it kind of looks like a squirrel, but I'll say Jesus. You know, <laughs> Do you guys ever, I don't know if you guys ever heard that one. But anyway, the point is, is it's nice to try to say that this is Jesus. I mean, I'm, but yet it's not. And the reason why we know it's not Jesus is because the term Kodesh kodeshim, Kodesh means holy, and so literally it's holy, holy place. And we would translate that therefore the most holy place. Okay, now it's not the superlative. The superlative is actually holy, holy, holy. And I don't know. That, I don't know what word you'd supply that would be greater than most, the mostest. <laughs> that would be three usages. But anyway, the point is it's the most holy place, and it's never used of a person. It's only used of the temple, of the altar, things associated with the temple. It, that's the only thing it's used for. Okay, So therefore, we know that's referring to what? To Jerusalem. Are to the, uh, specifically to the temple within Jerusalem. Okay, so what I want you to see here is how centered on Israel Daniel 9:24 is. Now remember, that's not neg- negating the idea that we have salvation. This isn't Judaizing. This is just recognizing the hermeneutic fact that what's what's talked about in Daniel 9 is a promise that's coming to Israel. But how am I going to be a part of that kingdom? Well, by faith in the Messiah. Okay, that's the only way I'm going to be part of it. Okay, so again, we have to walk and chew gum at the same time. So, Matthew 24, let me show you the fulfillment, in my opinion, of the 70th week and to show you some interesting things. Matthew 23, 37, Jesus was angry with the religious leaders in the, in the temple. He excoriates them, and on the way out, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather your children together. This term here is episunago. Now, what's interesting, I'm going to show you the structure here a little bit of Matthew 24. We actually have this longing for the Messiah to gather His people, and again, He's referring to those of Jerusalem. And we see, in my opinion, this resolved in Matthew twenty-four thirty-one, when and it says, "And He, that is the, the Son of Man, again a very messianic term, will send forth His angels with a great trumpet, and they will episunago, they will gather together His elect from the four winds." So, in my opinion, the tension that's set up here in twenty-three thirty-seven is actually resolved down here in 2431. Now what's interesting is there's a promise. And the promise is in the Old Testament that one day God would again gather the Israelites and bring them back to their land. And he was going to do this not by appealing to their good natures and having them do it themselves, but rather he was going to do it. It was going to be, if you will, a supernatural event. Let me give you some evidences of that. Isaiah 27:12 through 13. This is about the restoration of Israel in context. And it says, In that day Yahweh will start his threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt. Now, Kyle, let me stop there. Kyle and Delish, two excellent Hebrew scholars claim that this phrase, the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, that is the original geographic area that Israel was to dwell in. Okay? And so the idea that is God is going to bring about those promises to the way Israel was designed to be all along, that is within its geographical boundaries, okay? And so then he continues, he says, "...and you will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel. It will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown." Notice the terms, gathered up, and it's not just as a unit, but one by one. It's this idea of tenderness. God will take all of those who are elect of Israel and he will gather them from the surrounding nations, and he will bring them to Israel on the last day. And notice this phrase here, very important. It is the great trumpet. This is the only time in the Hebrew Scriptures that a great trumpet is mentioned. It is shofar gavol. Shofar is trumpet, gavol is great. So it is a great trumpet. It is the only time, I say again, I repeat, it is the only time in the Hebrew scriptures where a great trumpet is mentioned. Why is that significant? Well, because Jesus is playing off of that. He's talking about that very thing. He's talking about a great trumpet. Okay? So what's being referred to here, friends, again, is very Israel-centric. Again, you and I, as Gentile believers, should take great comfort in this. Why? Because you and I are going to have a part of this kingdom too. Why? Because we're believers in Jesus Christ. All right? Now, let me show you the Old Testament promises of the gathering. First of all, Note that several places, and I'm only going to give you a few, you're going to see places in the Old Testament where the scattering of Israel was not just generic, but to the four winds. Now, why is that important? Let me back up. Where does Jesus claim that they're gathered from? Well, the four winds. Okay, so for instance, Ezekiel 5.12, one-third of you will die by plague or be consumed by famine among you. One-third will fall by the sword around you and one-third I will scatter to every wind. Okay, now... This happened, first and foremost, during the dispersion after the Babylonian captivity. But every scholar that I've talked about said they've never been fully reformed as a nation again. They've never all come back. In fact, the majority of the Jews today do not live in Israel. They still live dispersed throughout the known nations, okay? And, of course, they're still in apostasy. Deuteronomy 30, verse 4, "...if your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there Yahweh will gather you." Okay? Okay? So again, even in the Pentateuch, we see these promises of this regathering. Psalm 47 2, Yahweh builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. I believe in the Septuagint. You may want to look into this, but I, I think that's Episenago. It's the very term that Christ is using in Matthew 23, 37, and also 24, 31. Isaiah 43, 5 through 7, Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather them up from the west. I will say to the north, Give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Friends, I'm just giving you a few of the passages. But the point is that the promise at the end of the age was that God would take the elect of Israel and bring them back. And the reason why I'm showing you that is I want to show you the Israel-centric nature of Matthew 24. Okay, Now, let me show you... Some other interesting things. Again, Matthew 23:37, Jesus cries out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you or gather your children together. Matthew 23:38, 38, he says, your house is left to you desolate. Whose house? Well, Israel's house and it is desolate just like it was laid desolate when the Shekinah glory left in the book of Ezekiel. The Shekinah glory left because of Israel's idolatry. And now they're engaged in the same idolatry that they did back then where they have actually rejected Messiah. They have rejected Messianic salvation and they found themselves in idolatry. And then in 2339, Jesus says, You will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is a psalm that the Jews still sing to this day. Okay? They still sing to this day. It is a Messianic psalm because in context... Psalm 18 is the last of the Hallel, the ascent psalms, where the pilgrims would come to Jerusalem and the people would cry out as they're bringing their sacrifices, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But in the context, Psalm 18 is all about messianic salvation. It's about God providing and protecting his people. And in the last day, they believe that they will cry this out as the Messiah comes. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. And of course, it is Jesus as the Messiah who will represent the name of the Lord par excellence. Remember that promise: you will build a house for my name. It said to David. Jesus is going to represent Yahweh. He is Yahweh. Before Abraham was, I am. Okay, this is extremely significant. And again, it's Israel-centric. Let me show you some other things. Twenty-four, fifteen of Matthew. Jesus mentions one prophet here by name, and who is it? It's Daniel. And so what is he bringing us to? He's bringing us to Daniel 9, is he not? Um, He refers to the abomination of desolation. What happens in Daniel 9? What happens in Daniel 9? Well, Daniel 9 is, again, all about the promise of uh, the fulfillment of the kingdom coming to Israel and therefore the Messiah. Remember the prayer, Daniel 9.19, your people and your city, they bear your name, right? Right? That's what it was all about. And so Daniel 9 is all about the remedying of that and the bringing in of this kingdom that we've been reading about since Genesis 3.15 or alluded to. Matthew 24.16, those in Judea, notice, flee to the mountains. Notice it doesn't say those in the Rocky Mountains or those in Colorado flee to the Rocky Mountains. No, it's Judea. 24.20, pray that flight is not on the Sabbath. Okay, well, let me just stop there. Colossians 2.16 says... Let no one judge you according to new moon festivals, according to Sabbaths or food or drink. These are a mere shadow of the things to come and the substances of Christ. So Paul is, and we see the same thing in Galatians 4.10. You and I are not obligated to Sabbath. And if today you go to a gas station or you go to get food in Minnesota on Saturday, is it a problem? Can you get gasoline? Yes, you can. But I was at Israel just over a year ago and I tell you, things shut down at Sabbath. Okay? Why? Because they're still under apostasy. Sabbath is still binding on them, but it's not binding on you and I. Okay? And I'll talk a little bit more about that. Matthew 24, the Great Tribulation is cut short for the elect. Now, if this elect, by the way, that term is electos, the other term, a lot of proponents that say that, there's not, that this elect must be the church, We'll claim that electos never is referred to or never refers to Israel. It always refers to the church. Realize ekloge is a noun. It's a feminine noun that refers to the elect of Israel in um, Romans 11:28. 28. And what my contention is, is that the elect here is talking about believers who will primarily be Jewish. Of course, there will be some Gentiles. Okay? But it's primarily Jewish believers. Alright? Now, Right now, you and I are living in an age where the majority of those who call on the name of the Lord, that is Jesus, are Gentiles. But there's a few Jews. Okay, It's going to switch in this time period within the tribulation. Okay, But this elect is first and foremost. Look at, look at the context here. It's all about Israel, and it's about the elect. And, and again, you're only a part of the kingdom if you believe in Jesus. So don't claim that you can somehow Judaize and that you're going to be a partaker in Sabbath, and circumcision, and that you're going to earn your way. No, it's through faith in Christ. But nonetheless, it is the elect that is from Israel. And if it is true that the elect of Israel is here, then it's here as well. Matthew 24, 25, the deception, if possible, even of the elect. This is Israel that that is believing Israel. And then Matthew 24, 31, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. Again, Isaiah 27, 13, the only time a great trumpet is mentioned in the entire Old Testament uh, Shofar Gavol. In fact, Isaiah 27.13 is in the national Hebrew prayer book, if I'm saying that right. They have a prayer book, and it is recognized as a, a, a prayer that they will sing in expectation of their bringing brought back to the land and having the messianic kingdom inaugurated. So they recognize it as well as part of that plan. And notice, and again, the idea is that they would gather, that Jesus would gather here together his elect. So, friends, if the elect here is believing Israel and the elect here is believing Israel, well, then the elect here is believing Israel. Okay? Unless you have some reason contextually why it would not be believers that are primarily Jewish. And again, I think the context favors that. These are people within the tribulation period and it would certainly focus in on Jewish believers. So to whom does Matthew 24 apply? Now, What I'm going to do is I'm going to show you a quote that Ryan Habanaugh has in his book. And let me just say this I'm not Ryan is a great scholar. And we agree on 99.9% of the things. And God bless him for wrestling with these things. Because if he didn't wrestle with them, I wouldn't wrestle with them and I wouldn't know any more than I knew before I wrestled with them. Are you with me? And so I just rejoice that he's wrestling with these things. Okay? So it's not that we're on different teams, we're on the same team. And we're rubbing against each other trying to figure out the truth. But listen, he's going to actually critique MacArthur and it's an interesting critique that he gives. So this is actually MacArthur, he's quoting. He says, those who recognize, talking about, by the way, this is about the parable of the fig tree and its relationship to Matthew 24 that, that we've been talking about here. MacArthur says this, he says, those who recognize the signs will realize that Christ's coming is at the door. Those who live during the tribulation can have absolute confidence that he will return soon. Okay, so that's MacArthur cited in page 17 of Ryan's book. Well, then Ryan says this, and it's very interesting. And again, we agree on 99% of the things MacArthur, he agrees with MacArthur's exposition. He says, "...MacArthur's exposition is sound regarding the central point, yet he does not hold that the command to watch for these things could apply to the contemporary church." Okay, and, and so that's his critique. So the idea here is what Ryan is saying is, in fact, if you don't hold to either a pre-wrath or a post-trip position, then the warnings in Matthew 24 cannot apply to the church, right? Because you and I won't be there. You see what I'm saying? We'll be raptured because we believe that we're going to be raptured prior to the 70th week. Now, in this instance, I have to side with MacArthur, and I'm going to give you three reasons Why? Okay, and again, and realize, friends, Ryan believes that the kingdom is coming to Israel. He believes that we are Jew and Gentile. He believes in all the things that I have asserted before. But what we're doing is we're wrestling with how does Matthew 24 apply? So the critique is of the pre-trib position is that it cannot apply to the church. But I would say, no, that is not true. It does apply to those in the church. The question is, how does it apply? How does it apply to you and I today? And let me give you three reasons why it applies and how it applies. First of all, Matthew 24 does apply to believers living during the Great Tribulation period. There will be believers who will be edified by the warnings that MacArthur just alluded to. Amen to that. But even more importantly... Matthew 24 applies to all believers in that it teaches that Jesus is faithful to all his promises concerning the messianic kingdom. Friends, this is what we should rejoice in. Daniel was the one who was crying out, my, my Lord, my God, heal. He prays for them. Let me just read it again. He says to them, Uh, or to the Lord. He says, Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, listen and take action for your own sake. Oh my God, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. Friends, maybe there's something more important than me as a Christian having my clipboard out wondering what I should do. Maybe what I should do is believe that this Yahweh is faithful to all of his promises. Because from Genesis 3.15 all the way now to Matthew 24, I see that this Christ is faithful to all of the promises he's made and therefore he's worthy of my trust and he's worthy of my continuing following and, and believing in him. That's what's important. And friends, that's how we persevere. Our God is faithful to all of his promises. And if he's faithful to all of his promises, then I should trust in him. That's what it's all about, okay? Now, I'm going to make another application. Three, Matthew 24 applies to all believers in the sense, listen, because passages like Matthew 24:44 44 says, you must be ready for you do not know when the Son of Man is coming. He's coming at an hour that you do not expect. Now, let me throw a challenge at my, at my pre-wrath and post-trib brothers. Think about this. Pre-wrath and post-trib, they really can't apply this passage. Now, here's why. The idea here is you must be ready. Why? You don't know when the Son of Man is coming. So you must be constantly ready. Now, before I go any further, let me assert this. My pre-wrath or post-trib brothers are going to be part of the kingdom. This is not a salvation issue, but it's an issue about who really can say that this applies to who. What I'm saying is, I think pre-wrath and post-trib would have a very difficult time applying this. Why? Because we know that, in fact, Jesus cannot come Why? Because how how many here have seen the Antichrist set up in the temple? I haven't. So therefore, why would you be ready? In fact, I dare say that it would take a while to build this this temple. In fact, I would say it's more than a two-week building project. So for the next two weeks, I can almost dare say that if pre-wrath or post-trib is right, Jesus, the Son of Man, is not coming. Okay? He's not coming. Is that what's being alluded to in 2444? See, so we can turn this idea and say, well, wait a minute. Does this really apply then to, in fact, the pre-wrath position? Okay. Bob had an interesting thought as well. He said, you know, these principles that we see within Matthew 24, within the 70th week, these warnings, for instance, there's going to be false Christs, false prophets. We have that now. Okay. But it's going to be of greater intensity during the great tribulation, but yet the principles still are with us today. So yes, we know that we're not going to be in that period, but we still can learn from the principles. Are, are you with me? And so that's another way it applies. So again, friends, it's, it's not that it doesn't apply to us, it's how. And it's primarily because our God is faithful to his covenant promises and we rejoice in that. You and I are part of the kingdom too. We have faith in Jesus. Now, let me throw out another challenge. Matthew 24:20 20 says, pray that that flight is not on the Sabbath. Here is a warning within the 70th week. Now let me say, say this. Again, you go to Israel on the Sabbath, you might have a hard time getting gas, food, shelter, so forth. Does that apply in Minnesota? No. So if you're a, let me just say it this way. If you're a tribulation saint, you're living in Minnesota, somewhere in the 70th week, how is this going to apply to you? I, I don't know. So what do you do with your clipboard? You want to, you want to follow Jesus and, and heed his warnings here. But how does it apply to you as a believer in Minnesota? I don't know. Let me show you another one. 24:16. those in Judea flee to the mountains. Now remember, I'm a Christian living in Burnsville, Minnesota during the 70th week. Does that mean I go to Buck Hill? Is that how I, is that how I follow it? What if I'm in Duluth? Do I go to Spirit Mountain? okay. Again, friends, this is Israel-centric. Why? Because there's going to be believers in Israel that this will apply to. That's how it applies. But again, it applies to all Christians because all of us can rejoice that God is faithful to his promises and therefore he's a God that's worthy of trusting. And therefore you and I, remember um, Romans 4.21, Abraham was fully assured that what God has promised, he was able to perform. And that's why he persevered. And you and I can say the same thing just like Abraham. Friends, that's how it applies. Now, what I want to do is I want to talk about the structure of Matthew. Bob and I came across an article that really, to us, was earth-shattering in the sense of the structure of Matthew 24. To me, and I don't know about you, for my Christian years and my Christian walk, Matthew 24 has been a question mark all wrapped up in an enigma for a long time. Well, we finally, and again, this is a blessed thing because of the challenge of the pre-wrath position. We wanted to see if they were right, but it got us back into this issue. And we found a man's writing on the issue of Matthew 24 and its timing and how it's structured. And this really revolutionized our understanding of Matthew 24. So what I'm going to do now is I want to share this with you. So you may want to get a pen and pad out for this because what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you how we believe this, this passage is structured, and I think this will make a lot of sense Remember now the question. This is the question of the disciples, and they're asking Jesus. And I'm claiming that this is actually a two-part question. The first portion of the question is I have highlighted kind of in red, and the second portion is blue. Okay. Now remember, Jesus had said three things that probably troubled them. One is your house is left you desolate. Second, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And also the third thing would be that there would not be one stone left upon another. And so the question that the disciples ask is, when will these things, notice the plural, these things happen? When will these things happen and what will, now here's the second part, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? The reason why I believe that's one question is because they reckoned when Messiah came, that's the end. Okay, so that's really one question. So there's two questions. When will these things happen and what will be the sign? Well, what's interesting is there's a man named Peter Ellis and he wrote a book called, I think it was called the Matthean Apocalypse. Don't quote me on that. But he talks about meticulous Matthew. Matthew is so particular about the way he does things. He actually has a lot of chiastic structures to his writings. Okay, he likes to use chiasms. And I'm going to show you one. This author is claiming that there's a chiastic structure right here. And I'm going to show you how it works. What? Again, let me just show you. The first question is, when will these things be? Then the next question is, what will be the sign of your coming? Now, what's interesting, what Jesus does is in this structure, he answers the second question first. And so the question, the second question in 24.3b, what will be the sign of your coming? That is what Jesus answers first in Matthew 24 through 35. And that answer has to do with the signs that are associated once you're within the 70th week. Okay. Well, then at the end of verse 35 he returns back to the question of when. When will these things be? In other words, when will this 70th week and all the things associated with it come about? When will it happen? And so then he answers that from Matthew 24:36 through 25:13, he's answering the when will these things be. Now what's interesting is you're going to see then the parable of the fig tree in Matthew 24:32 through 35. That has to do with the observable signs. And the idea is you will know. When you're within the tribulation period, you will know. You will have signs, definite signs, of when the Messiah is coming. But in verse 36, and it's actually marked off by a peri-day. If we have time tonight, I might talk about that. But peri-day is a preposition with a conjunction that always shows a break in thought. It's, it's united to the material before, but it shows a shift in emphasis and we're actually on one night i'm going to spend a copious amount of time showing you that because bob has done a, a lot of work on it and it's very important for you to understand that but that's evidence that there is a break in thought from 24 36 onward okay and notice here it becomes unknowable you do not know so in 32 through 35 these are things that you will know and from 36 to 25 13 it's un- unknowable you do not know So let me show you this pictorially. The things that we don't know is when. When will the 70th week come about? We can't know that. That is imminent. That can happen at any time. That will happen at any moment. It could happen tonight. It could happen next week. It can happen at any point. We don't know when the 70th week. But once we're within the 70th week, then we will have these signs and we will know. That to us is what we think the structure, the proper structure of Matthew uh, 24. Okay, Now, let me show you some more evidence of this. Matthew 24, 4 through 30. Again, Jesus answers the second portion of the question first. What will be the sign? Now, listen, this actually comes from, by the way, a sheet that Bob had sent me, so I'm just using his material. It's very good. Now, watch, watch how this unfolds. There will be false Christs and deceivers, verses 4 through 5. That's a sign. There will be wars, verse 6, famines and earthquakes, verse 7, tribulation and persecution, false prophets, abomination of desolation, great tribulation. Signs and wonders, signs in the sun, moon, and stars, the sign of the Son of Man. Again, all these things will be known. And that's what the parable of the fig tree says. There are observable signs. Once you're within the 70th week, it's knowable. Okay, you have all these signs. Now, the the first question, Jesus answers last. And the question is, when will these things happen? That is the things within the 70th week. And listen to how the answer changes. No one knows. No one knows the day or the hour. They did not know. That's talking about, I believe, uh, Noah, or the, those who perished in Noah's day. They did not know that judgment was coming. You do not know the hour that the Lord comes. Um, he's coming at an hour when you do not think. When he does not expect them, you do not know. Okay? So all of these things, friends, are unknowable. And so the idea then is the 70th week, again, it's, uh, it's beginning as unknown, but once the 70th week begins, there will be signs and what will happen becomes very predictable. Does that make sense? I have a few looks like that's a little confusing, but is everybody with me? So that's to us how the structure is best understood. Now, the other thing I, I wanted to remind myself, by the way, when it says no one knows, did not know, you do not know, when you do not think, when he does not expect, you do not know, what's that in a reference to? Is it a reference to tribulation Or is it a reference to Christ? It's a reference to Christ. So you don't know when. The idea is, what's not expected? When can you not know? You can't know when Messiah is coming. Okay? But it seems to me that all of the other things, once you're within the 70th week, you'll know. Those are knowable. But the point is, is this is referring to Jesus. What can't be known is when he is coming. Okay? Well, Let's, let's think about it. If Let's say we hold to the post-tribulation position. Once we hit the abomination that causes desolation, we count off our calendar three and a half years. And again, I know the pre-wrath contends that the great tribulation period is cut short, but we'll address that issue later, and we already have. But just think about it. If, in fact, you see the abomination that causes desolation, 42 months later, Messiah comes. Okay, well, how is that unexpected? Okay, and so again, what I'm showing you is that what's unexpected is Jesus coming. It's not the tribulation. It's not the troubles. In fact, you and I are going to have troubles now. Okay, that's to be expected. And once we're in the 70th week, it's going to get worse if, if we were unbelievers or we were people who came to faith in Christ during the tribulation period. However, prior to that, what's not known is when Jesus is coming. So let me give you a summary here. Number one, God has promised again from the beginning to bring the Davidic kingdom through Israel and to Israel. Two, the only way anyone, and again, we have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time, the only way anyone can enter this kingdom is through faith in Jesus Christ. And let me say at this point again, Ryan is excellent on this issue. He nails it. He understands it. We were going to write a book together. We just got too busy, actually. And I'm not a very good writer, so it would take me a long time. But the whole point is is we agree on all this. So don't accuse Ryan of not believing in this or anything. He's excellent on this. So, again, what we're only arguing about is how does Matthew 24 apply? And it's something that brothers can genuinely wrestle with. Matthew 24, again, applies, friends, to every believer in that it proves God's faithfulness to all of his promises. To me, friends, that's extremely important because, again, that tells us that this Christ that we serve and believe in is worthy of our trust. Matthew 24 applies to every believer in that Jesus' coming is imminent, We must believe. Now, again, what does it mean to be ready? These are four elements, I think. Believe, obey, preach, contend for the faith earnestly once we're all handed down to the saints. We should be about those things, okay? This is how we are ready. Matthew 24's warnings within the 70th week, again, will specifically apply to tribulation saints, primarily Israelite believers in Christ, okay? How much time have we gone so far? How much time do we have? Okay, I'll, I'll save the Perry day for another, for another day. Oh, 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 oh sorry. That was bad. Okay.